Thank you, Gavin, and please take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts. And please find chapter 6. Book of Acts, chapter 6. And while you do that, I want to just say to all of you in as sincere a way as I can that Peggy and I love City Light Church. We've been here since the beginning, and we love City Light. And we have great respect for uh, Gavin and Chris and Doug and Tyler and Joe and the entire team. And I want you to know it's a real privilege to me to have a few minutes to just share with you this morning. This morning, I want to talk with you in the most encouraging way I can about how God changes people. There's a humorous story about an alcoholic who became a Christian, and he had a non-Christian friend who could tell that something had changed because he could see it in his face. So one day, the friend just went up to the alcoholic Christian and said, what happened to you? And he said, well, I became a Christian. And he said, are you kidding me? He said, yeah, I became a Christian. He said, are you telling me that now you believe all those miracles in the Bible? He said, well, yeah, I do. And he said, well, tell me, how in the world can you believe that Jesus turned water into wine? And he said, because in my house, Jesus turned beer into furniture. (laughs) Now, it's true that our Lord's first miracle was turning water into wine, but his greatest miracle is turning sinners into saints. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is a word that means to change into another form. Metamorphosis is the word that describes how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And metamorphosis is the Bible word for transformation. And transformation, my friends, is God's intention for you and me. Changing us into another person. Changing our disposition, changing our human nature is God's intention. My friends, God this morning has a priority and a method. His priority is to save us and transform us. His method for saving us is the gift of his son. And his method for transforming us is the gift of his spirit. Now this concept of being saved and transformed is extremely vital for city light to grasp. Because nothing is going to hinder the cause of Christ in the city of Omaha more than a group of people who will say that they are saved and yet remain unchanged. We can't have that. We cannot be a church that says we're saved, but we remain just like we've always been. Unacceptable to God unacceptable to his word. God changes people. And there's something in your life that he wants to change this morning. If this is your first week with us, we're in the middle of a series in the book of Acts. And today in Acts 6, we're going to learn how Stephen, how God transformed a man named Stephen. Please follow along in your Bibles as I read and I begin with Acts chapter 6 verse 1. The words will be on the screen. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And a number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then, they secretly instigated men who said, Well, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now what follows is chapter 7 of Acts, and it is Stephen's entire sermon that basically begins with Abraham in the Old Testament and finishes up with the earthly life of Jesus. So I want you to pick up the story now in chapter 7, verse 54. Go to the very end. Acts 7, 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, men and women, the good news of the gospel and the hope that I want to offer all of us this morning is that God has the actual power to transform you and me and transform our human nature. And the good news is that the method God used to change Stephen is the same method he uses to change us. The first... He changes us by the way that he continues to fill us with his spirit. And if you have a program and want to fill in these answers on your program, that 
would be, that would be a great help. He continues to fill us with his spirit. When a person becomes a Christian, a miracle take, takes place. God gives every brand new Christian three supernatural blessings. His forgiveness, his acceptance, and his spirit. A Christian is forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. A Christian is adopted into God's family and fully accepted. And a Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, men and women, all of these blessings are immediate and permanent, but understanding forgiveness and acceptance is a whole lot easier than trying to understand the presence of the Holy Spirit. Many years ago, when I was a child, we used to sing a chorus that went into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. That, that song embodies what I want us to think about today. I want us to understand that this morning that when Jesus comes into our hearts, he brings his agenda with him. And his agenda is to continue filling us with himself. He doesn't come into our lives just to observe us. He comes in to take over. He comes in to take possession of all of us. He comes in to teach our mind and control our emotions and direct our will and govern our behavior and change our human nature and completely control a new disposition that he plants in our life. This is what happened to Stephen, and this is what the Bible calls being filled with the Spirit. Acts 6 reveals that Stephen was known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was full of God's grace and power. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, it says Stephen was so changed that his face looked like the face of an angel. In short, God continued to fill his life. Stephen cooperated, and people noticed. Peggy and I were married about 42 years ago in a small church in Illinois. I think we were in the ninth grade. Actually, we were both 20, and I was still in the ninth grade. We had a very traditional wedding, very traditional. Groomsmen, bridesmaids, flowers, candles, music, vows, rings, very traditional. But I will always remember that moment, that magic moment where the men were standing at the front, and all the bridesmaids were in place, and the audience stood and turned around, and then she appeared, dressed in white, coming down the aisle, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and except for today... I can't remember when she looked more beautiful. See what you learn in 42 years? <laughs> A wedding ceremony, we all know, is only the beginning. But through the years, something happens. A man is changed into a husband who learns to love his wife. And a woman is changed into a wife who learns to respect her husband. And believing in Jesus is only the beginning. But through the years, something happens. By the Spirit of God, a believer actually starts to think and act like Jesus. Others can't explain it. They don't understand it. But something is different, and they can see it by the look on their face. A couple of months ago, Peggy and I stayed at a resort with 400 rooms. 
Now, we all know that when a hotel is full, all of the rooms are taken. They're all occupied. Now, this morning, I want you to think of your life as a hotel with many rooms. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus owns your life. Jesus owns the hotel. But what I want to ask you this morning is, does he occupy every room? There's 400 of those. Does he have access to every room? Are there any rooms that are off limits? Are there any rooms that you don't want him to see? God's agenda is to fill every room of our heart until he occupies all of them. I'm telling you, you might as well give up. He's not going to stop. This is his agenda. This is what he's about. He is not interested in just living inside us to observe us. He's not interested in that. He is interested in occupying every room of the hotel. And when this happens, we are not so much getting more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is getting more of us. So I want to ask you this morning, are you cooperating with this process? Are you giving him access to every room in your heart? If we're not, it doesn't mean that we're not a Christian, but when we do, something supernatural happens. He changes the look on our face. My friends, it's time to cooperate with God. Nothing would please him more. The second way that God changes us is by the, by the way he involves himself in every part of our life. Before Jesus went back to heaven, he promised his disciples, I will never leave you and I will, never, I will always be with you. I will never leave you and I will always be with you. And it's clear that Stephen believed this promise because whatever he did, whatever Stephen did, God was involved. We know in Acts chapter 6 that some of the church's widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Now, this was a very serious matter, as you can imagine, because neglecting your own widows would have brought great shame upon the name of Jesus in that culture. Furthermore, we know that the 12 apostles empathized with the problem, but they said, we have different priorities. Our priorities are prayer and preaching. So finally, the Bible reveals that Stephen and seven others were set apart to handle this situation. The apostles prayed and asked God to be involved. The result was dramatic. The word of God began to increase. The word of God spread, and many people became followers of Jesus. Why? Because whether they were preaching or whether they were distributing food, God's spirit was involved in every part of every ministry, and it was his spirit that spread everything. And Stephen was no exception. Even though his job was serving widows, verse 8 says that by God's direct involvement, Stephen did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Now, what does this mean for us? In the kingdom of God, our influence is not based on our job. In the kingdom of Christ, our influence is not based on our position or our title or our visibility, our influence is based on whether or not God is involved. So men and women, I'm humbly asking you to consider the fact that it is impossible to emphasize how important this is. It's impossible to exaggerate the importance of this because without God's direct involvement in our lives, frankly, Christianity looks like every other religion. 
And furthermore, it quickly becomes nothing more than a routine of weekly services. So every week we come here, it's our routine. And between Monday and Saturday, how is God involved in our lives? If he's not, does it matter what the sign says on the building? What is the difference? What I'm saying is that there is a supernatural element to the Christian life and that our natural gifts and abilities are not enough. Stephen did not perform signs and miracles among the people because he was naturally gifted. He performed those works because Jesus was present. The miraculous signs and wonders were what Jesus did through Stephen, not what Stephen did for Jesus. And the same is true for us. The ministry of Jesus today is what he does through us, not what we do for him. Now, some of you may have never heard of a man named George Washington Carver. But he was born a slave in 1861. He had no formal education, and he died in 1943. Nevertheless, Dr. Carver became a famous scientist and is credited with being the father of synthetics because of his research on the, on the peanut. He attended Iowa State University. Those of you that are familiar with Iowa State know Carver Hall, George Washington Carver. In 1896, Carver was offered a job at a college in Alabama for $125 a month. Forty years later, his salary was the same because he declined every raise they ever offered him. Perhaps that could be an example for our pastors, now that I think about it. <laughs> Just kidding, Gavin. Not, not really. Even Thomas Edison tried to hire him for $100,000 a year, but Carver declined. Once, some peanut farmers sent him some diseased peanuts with a check for $100. He sent back his diagnosis along with the check. He wrote, As the good Lord charged nothing to grow your peanuts, I do not think it fitting to charge anything for curing them. Early in his career, Dr. Carver took his Bible into his laboratory and prayed for God's involvement. First, he asked God to teach him about the universe, but that was too complicated. Then he asked God to help him understand man, but that was too deep. Finally, he asked God to help him understand the peanut, and God seemed to say, okay. For 48 straight hours... Dr. Carver stayed in his laboratory, which he called God's Little Workshop, while concerned stu students kept tapping on the door to see if he was all right. When he finally came out 48 hours later, in addition to the animal, vegetable, and mineral kingdom, God had added a fourth, the kingdom of synthetics. Through God's direct involvement, Dr. Carver discovered over 300 products that could be synthesized from a peanut, cosmetics, hand lotion, Shampoo, shaving cream, dyes, paints, stains, candy bars, buttermilk, coffee, mayonnaise, vinegar, glue, charcoal, plastics, rubber, laundry soap, and hundreds more. Dr. Carver once said, God can guide us when we are tuned into him. Once he appeared before a congressional subcommittee and he demonstrated all the products that, could, that originated from the peanut when a congressman asked him, where did you learn all this? 
Dr. Carver said, from a book. What book, said the congressman, from the Bible, Dr. Carver said. Now, if God can involve himself with a man who served widows, and God can involve himself in a man who studied the peanut, then God can involve himself in our lives. Stephen didn't work alone. Dr. Carver didn't work alone. And men and women, we do not work alone. So I ask you, are you open to God's involvement in your life? Do you want his involvement? Really? If we don't, it doesn't mean that we're not a Christian. But when we do, something happens. Something supernatural happens. Not only does it change the look on our face, it changes the outcome of our life. My friends, it's time. It's time to start asking for God's involvement in every part of our life. Nothing would please him more. And finally, God changes us by the way he gives us the strength to forgive. In the middle of Acts 6, it says that Stephen was falsely accused and brought before the Sanhedrin, which was a kind of a religious supreme court. At the end of Acts 7, the Sanhedrin resented Stephen's sermon so much that they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And I admit that I am hoping for a little better result after this morning's message. What really seemed to irritate them was that Stephen said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But what irritated them actually strengthened Stephen. Seeing Jesus gave Stephen the strength to forgive. Seeing Jesus prompted Stephen to say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And it is only seeing Jesus that can change a bitter heart into a forgiving one. Because without the Spirit of God, forgiving is virtually impossible. So let me be clear. Forgiveness is not about canceling the consequences for someone's behavior, and it's not about forgetting what they did. Forgiveness is refusing to hold it against them. Forgiveness is not keeping score. But I ask you, humanly speaking, who has the strength to do that? Who has that kind of strength? Only the Spirit of Jesus. In his book, In the Grip of Grace, Max Locato tells the story of a 17-year-old boy named Kevin Tunnell, who on January 1st, 1982, hit and killed 18-year-old Susan Herzog. The case went to juvenile court where Kevin was convicted of manslaughter and drunken driving. The victim's family sued him for $1.5 million, but settled for $936. To be paid back one dollar each Friday for 936 weeks from 1982 to 2000. 18 years, the age of their daughter. If he forgot, and sometimes he did, they took him to court. 
Kevin was willing to pay an extra year's worth if he could, if he could have permission to write out one check. But the victim's family said no, quoting the mother. We want to receive the check every week on time. He must understand that we are going to pursue this until August of 2000. We will go back to court every month if we have to. Max Lucado writes, few would question the anger of the family. But I do have one question. I do have one concern. Are 936 payments enough for the family to demand? When they receive the final payment, will they be at peace? Is 18 years of restitution sufficient? How much is enough? Without God's strength, the natural tendency for all of us is to try to find a creative way to make the person pay. But Jesus has a different approach. And it looks like this. Ella Jo Sadler was at her home in Quaker, Missouri on July 18, 1959. On that Saturday evening, Ella Jo heard a sh the sound of a gunshot that came her from her father's grocery store, was about, which was about 100 yards from her house. 19-year-old John Crump and 14-year-old John Davis wanted to steal a car. In the process, they sh Crump shot Ella Jo's father in the back of the head while he was making them a sandwich. When they failed to find the keys to the car, they went to the farmhouse next door. Ella Joe's mother saw them coming and tried to run out of the house. They shot her twice, but she did live. 16-year-old Ella Joe and 17-year-old Bobby Lou were getting ready for a date. Crump beat both of them with the stock of his gun. Bobby Lou died, and Ella Joe remained in a coma for three weeks. After they were captured, Crump pleaded guilty to all the charges and was given life sentences for the murders and consecutive 75-year sentences for the assaults. Davis was given 40 years and then paroled after serving 10 because he was only an accomplice. Because Missouri did not have a life without parole sentence at the time of the murders for two decades, Ella Joe had to appear before the parole board to oppose Crump's release. Although her book, Murder in the Afternoon, used a fictitious name for the murderer, she frequently gave a copy of the book to the parole board so they would understand. Once Mr. Crump tried to bring a lawsuit against Ella Joe because he said the book violated his civil rights. How could Ella Joe ever find the strength to forgive? Her turning point came one night during a recurring dream. She said, in this dream, I often saw Jesus, myself, and the two men standing in an open field. I always saw myself standing alongside Jesus and the two murderers directly across from us. But on this night, I saw Jesus looking down at all of us from the cross. And I saw myself standing right next to my enemies. And then I realized that Jesus needed to forgive me in the same way that he needed to forgive them.
She writes, from the cross, Jesus forgave his murderers on the spot. It took me 11 years, but I've learned to trust the Lord even at my weakest moment. When Stephen saw Jesus in heaven and Ella Jo saw Jesus on the cross, they saw the grace of God toward themselves. And when we see Jesus taking our place on the cross, we realize that grace is treating people better than they deserve. And it's when we see that grace and receive that grace that he gives us the strength to forgive someone else. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I ask you this morning, do you need help? Do you need God's help to forgive someone? If we're not asking God to help us forgive, it doesn't mean we're not a Christian. But when we do, something supernatural happens. He sets us free. Forgiveness is unlocking a prison door to set someone free and then realizing that the prisoner is you. It's time to ask for God's help. Nothing would please him more. Let's pray. I want you to take a moment as your heads are bowed and just consider what God has been saying to you today. You've heard his voice. What has God been saying to you today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for saving us by the gift of your Son, and we thank you for transforming us by the gift of your Spirit. We want to cooperate with your grace. We are asking you to fill us with your Spirit, involve yourself in our life, and give us the strength to forgive. In the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, amen. Let's stand together.